Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is the podcast where my guests share with me, with you, the picture postcards that they've kept, the cards they couldn't bear to part with, or the cards they spent years collecting. And together we learn what it is in the messages, memories and meanings that give them their power. I'm Tom Jackson, and today I'm delighted to say my guests are both confirmed postcard collectors and studiers, and both, not entirely coincidentally, with a particular interest in the postcards of the subcontinent. They are Omar Khan and Dr. Stephen Hughes. Omar and Steve, hello and welcome. Thank you. Hi. Stephen Hughes uh, completed his MA and PhD in Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Chicago. And over the course of the last 30 years, his work has focused on Tamil-speaking South India. Since joining SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies in London... Um, In 1997, his teaching has focused on the anthropology of media, ethnographic and documentary film, social theory and South Asia. And postcards have been part of his work over recent years. And not long ago, he co-curated a splendid exhibition at SOAS, From Madras to Bangalore, uh, picture postcards as urban history of colonial India, full of beautiful, strange, touching and sometimes troubling images. Steve comes to us today with a fading postmark from uh, San Francisco, California, uh, redirected, I think, to another uh, overstamped OX postmark from Oxford. Now, Steve, do you still send postcards? Absolutely. Not as much as I used to, I'm, I'm sorry to admit, but I, I certainly take whatever opportunity I can to post them on. And do you feel by doing that you're keeping some kind of tradition going? Mm. Not exactly. I just think they're fun, and you can you can you can say pithy things um, and not have to. Uh, at this day and day, it's it's uh, it's something very different than other kinds of communication. It's a surprise. Uh, people aren't expecting it, and it's nice to get something through the letterbox. Absolutely. Now, uh, Omar Khan has been researching early photography and ephemera of the subcontinent for thirty years, and he has a large collection of postcards. Um, Omar's interest in early photography led him to write From Kashmir to Kabul, the photographs of John Burke and William Baker. But his latest book is what caught my eye, um, the vast magisterial paper jewels, which um, 
The table here is just about holding up. It's a huge book. It's a postcard journey, a sort of gazetteer, city by city, uh, looking at the early cards of the subcontinent, uh, giving you an idea of the history of card manufacturing and also the images from each region. It's a lovely big, big book. Um, not really one to take in the bath, but one to, to spend time sitting over and enjoying. Now, Omar comes to us today with a really blurry postmark that I can hardly read. You'll have to unpick your, your, your travels and your journey for us. Sure, let me try. Well, I'm Pakistani with a Dutch mom. I grew up in Vienna, Austria, and then moved back to Pakistan for high school, went to the States to study, worked in Pakistan for UNICEF for many years after that, and then now live in the United States where I'm married to an Indian in San Francisco for the last 25 years. So there's a, there's a sort of journey back and forth, not unlike the, those taken by picture postcards crisscrossing the world. I'm a human postcard, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> it's beautifully put. And now, Omar, when did you last send a postcard? I just bought two yesterday at the V&A to send to my two daughters. Uh, I do still send postcards. I feel obligated now that the book is out <laughs> to still send postcards. But occasionally, I, when I go to a new place, I like to send a postcard. And it is, as you said, it's a surprise. People don't expect them. And that's what's, I think, cool about them in today's context. Well, before we discover the cards that Steve and Omar have brought along from their collections for us to look at, I'll give you a quick card of mine. This is, of course, a postcard from the past card, uh, like I do on Twitter, at past postcard, an old card from which I've selected just a part of the message. So this is a British card. Um, view from London Bridge. There you are. It's a typical sort of thing I might see as a visitor to London. And the card actually is from 1953. Coronation year, I think. And... It's, a, it's an odd message. It's, 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 not, it's not a funny message, but it's a message that I thought had a bit of um, historical interest, really. Dears, tomorrow we go to Eastbourne for one week. Here in London, we sleep, eat, walk and rest. BB's wait, so someone called BB, in the underground station, 8.7 stones, at Kew Gardens... 9.3 stones, at the chemists, 8.11 stones. So I, I suppose they're going around using the, the, the penny-in-the-slot weight machine, and this sort of scientific analysis proves that they're absolutely useless. Or BB's weight is fluctuating with an extraordinary and slightly alarming uh, rapidity. There well, you are. What a way to entertain yourself through London during the day. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel so sorry we don't have those... Uh... The, the scales anymore. You might think that the sights they'd refer to would be more spectacular than just the, the speak your weight machine. But uh, anyway, it kept BB entertained. And us too. Yeah, with, but it's an adult. I mean, eight stone. I, oh, they put it. They put it into sort of graft, like their yeah. It's laid science, out scientific measurement. Absolutely. I think. Anyway, I think mm. you'd worry if if it was sort of just going down and down or up and up, but it, it, it fluctuates. Yeah, maybe BB just was enjoying the food. Say, lunch isn't factored in here. We don't have the times. <laughs> yeah, you need to know what time of day it is. I'll do another quick one. This is a much more recent card. Uh, it's a John Hind card, and everyone's familiar with these uh, oversaturated colours. Very nice image of the River Dart. And the card was sent in 1987, so a relatively modern card. This is interesting. It's sent from Dartington Hall, I think. You know, Dartington Hall, where they have a lot of these um, musical retreats and educational courses and so on. And they're, they're talking about Dartington Hall here, the, the, the correspondent, a chap called Colin. And he says, The Soviet composer, Alfred Schnitke, was due to appear this week, but has failed to materialise. Then he says, KGB or British Rail? <laughs> <laughs> well... 
I had a quick look at it. It turns out I think Alfred Schnitke was actually suffering in ill health that time. That's probably why he cancelled the tour. But um, the first thought in these uh, Cold War times was uh, KGB might have done something to him. He, he was a controversial co uh, composer, I think. Well, just to let you know at home, uh, images of all the cards we discussed today are on the blog, uh, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, and you can investigate for yourself. Now, Omar and Steve, you've both been kind enough to come along to the studio today with postcards of your own, which is great. Steve, let's start with you. There's actually two postcards here together. Tell me what these are. These are postcards of my grandfather. Actually, as a, my namesake, um, uh, he died several, two years really before I was born, and uh, and there's a sort of uh, odd generation gap between me and him. He's really counts as would be normally my great-grandfather in terms of the age. He was born in 1878. Wow. So it takes you right back to the Victorian age. Yeah. And, and he um, he wound up serving in the American Army or the Navy uh, during the Spanish-American War at the turn of the 20th century. Goodness. And um, these postcards come from a collection of about 25 that was um, given to me by my mother. Um, she was obviously trying to make me... Um, sort of have some sort of connection with her beloved father who had recently passed away. So, Wait, she, so when did you when did you get hold of these? I was probably about 10. She drip-fed me little things from his... She had a whole chest of things uh, that was all from his uh, possessions. Bits from his time in the military, and after, after he served in the Phil Philippines, he went to spend 10 years in the Red Cross uh, touring East Asia. So he was in Borneo and Papua New Guinea and Korea and... I mean, everywhere, really. So he must have, was your mother with him then, or was he? No, no, he had, he was 51 when my, uh, when my mother was born. So this was all a life before your mother yeah. was born. Yeah, and, and. What stories he must have had. Yeah, no, he, in fact, he, he grew up in uh, Missouri at, at a time when uh, the Jesse James and Frank James were outlaws. <laughs> So, so he had these stories to tell her. So like I said, he was a, a connection to this 19th century world that uh, I unfortunately never get, got to meet. But so she, you know, she gave me these cards, um, and the two cards are... So these are what they call real photographic cards, aren't they? So Yes, they are. Exactly. They're, they're like like just snapshots. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't go and buy pictures of your grandfather. They were no. done specially, presumably. Exactly. So, and so he, he had a photographer taking shots at his workplace. It's a, it's a dispensary. Um, at, on the back, one of the cars says Yard Dispensary at uh, Olongapu. And I haven't looked that up exactly, or I'm, I don't really actually recall where that is in the Philippines. And uh, we see him measuring out... Uh, Medicines and standing in the in the the yard of the dispensary, which is he's showing, these, these showing are, us how it's done. These are the kind of cards that, when they become separated from the relative, the owner, they just suddenly become meaningless. Absolutely. But they, all the meaning is there for you. Absolutely, because it's the whole. I have the whole picture, the, all his material reigns and, and letters and postcards that go with this. We have his entire correspondence from his time, you know, traveling in, in East Asia and letters and postcards and things. And so, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it sort of planted. I probably. I mean, I didn't think about this at the time, but uh, it sort of planted this idea of these early postcards. I so mean, you think they, you stowed that idea away about the meanings in postcards and revisited it later? Well, they were always sort of precious things for me. I mean, the chance that time, times I got to, you know, we, she would take me through the contents of this magical chest with all all his things and. Um, you know, the postcards were, you know, immediately, you know, they're, they're sort of tangible. You can flip through them. You can see his handwriting. You've got um, the muscle memory for 
flipping through postcards then, perhaps. <laughs> Who knows? With, with good associations as well. Uh, but like him, you're a traveler into Asia too, right? Although a different part. Yeah, that's true. I spent many years traveling in Asia um, during my formative years. <laughs> and it's not unusual for postcards to be about distances between people. That's sort of the meaning of a postcard to some extent, is that I'm sending it from me to you. You don't send it to someone in the same room or the same street. It's nearly always a function of traveling to far-flung places. Yeah, and absolutely, um, it's the distance that I could never uh, never bridge. I think my mother always felt bad that I could I did never meet her father. And, you know, she gave me, you know, he's Daniel... Stephen Putnam, and I'm Stephen Putnam Hughes, and she, I always carried that with me, that I'm somehow, I'm sort of carrying on some legacy of him, but I could, I never actually met him. And so these cards were the, were, you know, covering that distance for me in a way. And you say you've got quite a large collection of these. I, I didn't do a count. I'm saying 25 or between 25 and 30. Oh, are they, what kind of images have they got on them? Um, most of them are from the Philippines. Um, there's the aftermath of a, a great typhoon, and see destruction of the docks and, yeah. and you know t- ships overturned, and um, we also see um, naval ships ships at the dock, and we see he spent a lot of time um, sort of in, on land. He was mostly stationed in, in the dispensary on land. Uh, most of them are commercial postcards, you know, that are mass-produced right. for, you know, people in the Philippines. And these are unusual because they're, you know, they're, they're basically like family photos but printed up on this generic postcard back, right? So he probably had these done in small batches and sent them out to all his family members. When you had that sort of thing made up, how many would you have had in a batch? Do you know? It's hard, it's hard to say, but five I mean, or ten, I suppose. Certainly, I would think I would think no less than that. I mean, it's going to be cheaper by the dozen. Yes. I think they came in sheets, ah. and you you cut them down, and you can see. And, Are they slightly and, ragged? Or? And so, well, they're not always um, they're not always straight, and they're 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 smaller than postcard <laughs> formats. Oh, yes. I mean, if you if you size them up, and sometimes they're they're sort of cropped up. Differently, you know. I mean, I don't know. You can kind of. So, and and I, I imagine in, in the dispensary, he'd have had access to some kind of good so, blades yeah, and things. Cutting. A... I see what you mean. Yes. And I've seen reference to this before. People talking about apologizing for for cutting off some relative's hat because they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't measure they couldn't measure the cutting. So I, I mean, well, it looks like he had a decent eye actually because they're cut pretty well. They're okay, I think. So, yeah, he had access to surgical equipment. I'm sure. <laughs> Perfectly placed to have these many years later. That's brilliant, and it, it's it's strange because there is a sense that they are quite simply photographs. But to a postcard collector, the fact that they have the divided back, the word postcard on them, they are postcards. Yeah, absolutely. It says, "Please place stamp here." You know, <laughs> which is always I always think it's sort of funny that they have the you know correspondence here and address here of course it's it's a relic to when they were undivided backs when yes. you had to write your message on the front but it, it's still there today you know people are still getting instructions as if yes. we, we don't know yes. how to write a postcard yes i wonder if that's the world's longest lasting unnecessary instruction <laughs> because we all know how to write a postcard don't we yes, absolutely as people well, are the art is being lost actually yes yes see, you know? <laughs> so maybe the fact that that's remained is is gained a new validity it seemed a bit arcane, but now we need to know. Well, that's brilliant. And, and such an interesting personal uh, memento that you've got there of your grandfather. It's brilliant. Omar, now you've got a lot of your finest cards, or some of your cards, are in a big exhibition at the moment in India. 
But you've brought some with you today, which certainly get us going. What's the first card you'd like to show us? Sure, I want to show this postcard of a gardener, a Mali, in India by the great Indian postcard artist, my favorite postcard artist, M.V. Durandar. And it shows this Mali from a low-angle shot looking up at him. This is the most humble of professions in India, and you hardly ever see a Mali on a postcard. And they're usually really, you know, dour figures in the corner off somewhere. But here's this man who's completely in command of his realm. He's cutting some flowers from the side. He looks like he's having a great time. There are beautiful impressionistic watercolors all around on the postcard. So really a fine work of art, and I think it really uplifts the profession. And it's just typical of Durandar to always give his character's real personality. And what I like about him so much in his 70 or so set of postcards that he made of people in Bombay is to always give them a real sort of unique attribute that really makes them stand out as postcards. Now, this is actually a reproduction of the card that yes. you've, you, you've had printed, actually. Yes, I had it printed, yes, because I liked it so much and I actually handed it out and sent it to people today. So you've given the old card new life. Yeah, exactly. Cards representing professions... Is, is a common theme in India, or certainly was I mean, in the time we're talking about, which is really the, uh, the late 19th, early 20th century. Often they're not images created by Indian artists. They're often they're created by Western photographers. Is that right? That's true. That's very true. And uh, I mean, but I would say that things changed and often it was Indian photographers actually showing Indian artisans at work and craftspeople and so forth. So all, you're right, at the very beginning, there were a lot of Western photographers and their images became postcards. But I would say by 1905, 1910, that had switched and you mainly had Indian studios taking the pictures and producing the postcards. Now, without going into, you know, too complicated a history of this, your personal history, having been born in Austria, has a parallel to the history of postcards in India, doesn't it? Because the Austrians played quite a big part early on in postcards. Yeah, I was actually born in Holland, but I grew up two weeks later. I moved to Austria. We'll forget the two weeks. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) So basically, an Austrian invented the concept of the postcard in 1816. So we're all to benefit from that, that the Austrians have got the, the stamp on them for everyone. Exactly. But then specifically in India. So in India, so so two things. There was, a, there was, I think he was an Austrian or a German photographer in uh, Calcutta who had the very first postcards of India, it seems, printed in 1897, if not 1895, printed in Austria. So you had these small lithographic presses in Vienna's 6th district, which produced many of these postcards. So many of the very earliest cards actually are printed in Austria. You also have the earliest artist-signed postcard that I can trace of India, produced by an Austrian painter, Josef Hoffmann, and this was July 1898. And it was written up as an exceptional work of printing and production in the early you know, magazines about postcard printing uh, and production. So really, the Austrians were there at the very beginning. And Germans, too, picked up the industry very quickly. And even in America in the early part of the century, German-Americans were said to be the biggest postcard senders and collectors. So there was this kind of middle European sort of origin uh, to this uh, sort of medium, uh, which then came to Britain and then Raphael Tuck and company and other companies took over much more quickly. But the Germans produced most of the postcards in the world until World War I. So they were really important as sort of developing the different printing processes from lithographs to collotypes and then halftones as well uh, that actually let postcards become inexpensive enough that everybody could have them and you could suddenly have billions of postcards sent from just a few millions maybe in the middle 1890s. It's, it's hard to believe now, really, that the journey that some of these cards took before they'd even been posted. Um, I mean, can you sort of talk us through the, the shape of the from an image being created or captured in India to a card then being sent 
from India perhaps to Surrey. Sure, you'd have like Gobind Ram Uderam, a photographer in Jaipur, take a photograph. He would send it to Germany. It would be made into a postcard. It would come back by ship to Jaipur. It would be sold to a tourist outside the Habamahel, let's say, and then sent by that tourist to somebody in England or America or France. And then maybe today a collector will buy it from yet another country. So postcards always have this way of hopping around from place to place. Before they've even been sent. Yes. It's amazing, really. And uh, it's hard to believe that they could still then be sold so cheaply with all that, uh, all those uh, sea miles invested in them. Yes. Well, originally in the late 1890s, postcards were still quite expensive. They were one or two annas a piece. And then you just, so this is where mass production and business really took over. And people just drove down the costs of producing these. You know, ship lines became even more frequent between, you know, Europe and India. So a lot of other factors in society actually contributed to making the postcard such a, you know, sort of uh, object that was taken everywhere. There's an interesting thing in your book, uh, a lot of interesting things in your book, mainly postcards, but there's a, there's a line in it that I didn't even know if I wanted to sort of jump up and down and argue with you or, or celebrate it and shake your hand, because it's a strange phrase. I'd like to you know your, your thoughts on this as well, Steve. You say, a postcard contains no secrets at all, or it contains them very carefully. Now, I think postcards, they definitely do contain secrets at this length of time away from... Is that not right? Do we? Because it's very hard to really... Even the messages you think you understand, aren't there normally some rough edges that are hard to get behind? That is true, but look, so many postcards from India, for example, were sent to women in England, and they could have been a romantic kind of, you know, some kind of uh, insinuation. In fact, the Austrian uh, playwright, uh, Stefan Zweig, was in Bombay, and he heard the news that a woman in Vienna had gotten engaged. So he sent her a postcard of the Parsi uh, Tower of Silence, where all the dead people go, and that was his message back to her. So, you know, he's communicating something. That's the message. (laughs) Exactly. And then, you know, the way... The way the stamp was positioned on the front of a postcard also often contained a message. I love you. I hate you. Don't send me any more postcards. There's a whole grammar around that as well. So, yes, I think something that is so public also has something that is, because it's human communication, that may be buried or secret or just, you know, on the side. You're you're an academic, Stephen. You want answers. That's what you're about. You're about making sense of things. You're about... You know, I'm a romantic when it comes to postcards. I like mysteries and confusions. But you're paid to understand things properly. So do you think there are secrets in postcards? Well, I will contest uh, the uh, notion that I should be understanding things properly. I think I think anthropologists uh, love nothing more than making things complicated and, and looking for nuance and confusion, uncertainty. I think that's what anthropologists love. They gave up on science and measuring people long ago, and it's this it's this it's this more romantic side that I think that most anthropologists would look for. But in terms of secrets, uh, absolutely, there are secrets, but they were secrets that were out in the open. They were very public. Secrets. Secrets. And I think Omar is absolutely right. There are all kinds of ways in which you could encode these messages in ways that only your that were meant for your your readers, the receivers, and only in ways that only they could understand. I mean, the, you know, the postage stamp was switched, but also people had they had all sorts of little codes. You know, sometimes they would alternate lines in such a way that you couldn't just glance at it and be able to see what it was, but you'd have to know the pattern of, of what line to or read when. So if your mother's sequence. reading the card, she'll get caught by you in the hallway because she has to spend so long Functive, trying to decode it. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I haven't come across lots of those um, those kinds of things from India, but uh, very often people will, you know, change the orientation, right, so that the postman doesn't accidentally read it. 
and mirror writing occasionally. Yeah, occasionally some mirror writing. That's hard work. That's a real it, investment it is, in, in, it is in mystery. Indeed, it is indeed. But it's something very curious. That, that it's, a, it's a bit of personal correspondence that, of course, is potentially very public. And so I think that created a kind of uh, sort of creative ways of having a personal or something that's, uh, that's something very personal, but a move between various personal spaces that still is proper and, and public. If I can add something to that, actually, there's at the back of my book the post, uh, the pictures of an Indian postman reading a postcard, and somebody at my talk in Madras, Suhasini Mani Ratnam, mentioned to me and reminded me that actually in those days the postman had to read the postcard to the recipient because that recipient was likely illiterate, so the postman was actually the interpreter of the message to the person who was receiving the postcard. So that's a really important position in society, yes. and you can't blame the post- postman for reading the postcard, <laughs> and the recipient has no. Idea idea if he's being read the right thing. Yes, you probably just had a set message for everyone. Everything's fine. Truly, it's about the weather. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Weather surprisingly good. Monsoon not, not here yet. And how about I mean, a, lot of, a lot of cards in this period from India were going to the UK with their own linguistic issues. I mean, there was a sort of, uh, there was the argo, the language of, of empire. Do you see that the British messages going to the UK, are they, are they written in a particular way that's different from other messages? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe Steve can speak more to that. I would say, yes, there is a certain colonial attitude in the messages, a certain uh, sort of talking about how hot it is here and how much we have to drink and, you know, things like that. Uh, and there is kind of a negative view towards uh, many Indians, I would say, looking down upon the people. But not that's not always the case. And I try and find those cases which where that's not actually true. So and I think there are very many different levels at which people are communicating. And one wants to look for the exceptions and not necessarily the cliché. That's true. There's a lot of a lot of it is cliched, but because the uh, in the early years of postcard business in India, the main market were Europeans living in India for sending abroad. They were a little bit too pricey for most Indians, uh, not all by any means. But um, the images were selected to cater to uh, outsiders, who mostly not so much tourists, but sort of Europeans living in India to send to their families and friends outside. And what we get is a kind of, um, if you like, a, it's, it's almost a, a colonial sociology of everyday life for, for Europeans in India. So the, um, we see a lot of cards about Indians that they Europeans would most likely encounter in their everyday life. So that's why we see a lot of people, servants, people working in the homes and gardeners and uh, just a general kind of service economy that that serviced the lifestyle of of Europeans living in India and all of which presumably would have appeared a, quite a novelty to those back home so absolutely. inevitably of interest absolutely and i I, th- I think it was also most of the people that were working in India from from Britain would not have had servants back home they were not of a class you know they they were if you like you know they're coming from Ireland Scotland and Wales and they're looking to have a better life and and, and live live a lifestyle that would not be possible for right. them back and, and at home. And happy to parade that to some extent in the in, in the home. correspondence home. Look 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 how we get on. Yeah, I mean they're they're not coming out and bragging about how many servants they have, but just the fact that they have servants yeah. is a message that would have um, would have gone down with interest at home. To give you an example, Werner Rössler, who sent those very early postcards of Calcutta, one of his postcards has a fakir on the left, and his message written by Rössler and signed is, 
when you look at some of the inhabitants of this land, you understand why Darwin's theories are true. Mm. So, you know, even though it was such a beautiful postcard, there was such a racist message underneath it. So, so that's, that's the really sort of brutal message. Yes. That's the, yes, that's the far end of the, what you were talking about, the, that there are more benign messages. But, um, yes, there's a, quite a nasty side to those, which you can't avoid. No. Really. There's that's a brutality a, to the arrangement. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, it was part of what it was to live in colonial India. It was very hierarchical. Yes. And, and, and it's not just that uh, the Europeans were the uh, uncontested overlords. There were uh, a lot of wealthy Indians as well who were doing the exact same thing as the Europeans. So um, you can't imagine, even today, you can't imagine in India sort of a middle-class family living without servants, for example. You know, it's very common. And the, the same kind of visual cliches and stereotypes that Indian middle classes have about their servants are there in the postcards. So there is a kind of continuity. It's not just a sort of European or sort of colonial versus Indians. I mean, there, there's a way in which some of the, the sort of life, patterns of lifestyle that, that were established in that time have carried on in, in independent India. Good point, yeah. Well, I'm going to change the tone slightly, something rather lighter. This is a card from Bath, beautiful city of Bath, Georgian city of Bath, along wide vistas, multi-view, sent to Bristol, Brislington in Bristol, not so far down the road. It's sent from the youth hostel in Bath, actually, in 1983, I think. And it's just the way it was phrased appealed to me. At first, I thought your phone was busy a lot, then decided to check no listing under this address. And then, phone is faulty. Well, whatever. I have to leave and sorry to miss you. So these are the days before mobiles. Missed connections or were they ignoring the call? In fact, that card is something like it's an answering machine message. Yes. It's ex- exactly what you would have left yeah, tried had, you, to call you. Had, you, had you got to the answering machine. Yeah, yeah. But this is, of course, before people... Had lots of answering machines, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I think I think these people have unplugged their phone. Oh God, he's in town. I really don't want him coming around. But he's using it like a carte de visite in the 19th century, where you left your card when you yes. visit somebody. Yes, but but a rather bitter one, I think. <laughs> yeah, there's, I, I can feel the resentment. Forty years on, it's still pretty resentment, though. Yeah, that whatever, the whatever is. Yeah, that sounds like the modern whatever. It does. The it California is. It's, it's, whatever. It's just dripping with, uh, <laughs> with sarcasm there. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. And my guests today are postcard collector and author Omar Khan and from SOAS in London, Dr. Stephen Hughes, whose studies have also led him to postcards. Uh, Steve, what's the second card? I think you've actually got two cards. What are the cards you've got for us now? The first one is the, the card that sort of got me focused on looking for historical postcards of South India. It's a card of a procession walking down one of the main streets in the city known as Madras, now known as Chennai. But what struck me here is, I mean, there's a crowd of, there's a wide boulevard and there's a a crowd leading some kind of procession. I can't see, it could be funeral, but I can't quite make out what's being carried there. But it doesn't so much matter for me. But uh, you can see a tram car coming towards us in the distance there. But it was really this building on the left that, that I was interested in here, this one here. And if you look carefully, it says Misquiths. And it's a, oh, yes, yes. It's a music, uh, it was a music company store. Ah. And so I, 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 from selling sheet music or and instruments? Instruments, instruments, pianos, all kinds of things. Right. And they had a they had a little showroom, and they had a hall on the first floor for music performances and recitals and other kinds of things. But um, I had stumbled on this card uh, soon after I moved to London. At Charing Cross, they used to have a secondhand shop. There were a lot of postcards there, but there were other things. They were selling old books and other other kinds of things. Sundays mornings, and I, and I just flipped through and I found this and. First surprised to see a card from the, the first decade of the 20th century, but it actually answered uh, one of these questions that I had. Uh, at the time, I was doing research on the beginning of cinema in South India. And, uh, of course, as we all know, India has had the, the largest uh, film industry in the world. Uh, it's a very important part of what India is all about. Um, so what I was looking for is um, I had been researching on on this topic, you know, how did cinemas begin? What kind of institutions hosted cinema? How did it grow? What were the early audiences? And I had been having trouble finding the locations for these these early cinemas because they, they weren't permanent. They were they came for short engagements. They would come for, for four weeks at a time, and they, they didn't have their own you know, purpose-built cinema halls yet. They, so like a real traveling entertainment. It was a traveling entertainment, and it was, and it was like vaudeville because they often came with live acts and other kinds of things. It was this combined show, a few films, I mean, just similar to what it would have been at, the, at this time in Britain and the United States. I mean, it's just slightly before the sort of Nickelodeon area where you get these small little storefronts popping up cinemas everywhere. And uh, I had really confusion where to find them. And when I saw this postcard, I realized uh, one of the early of these touring cinemas that converted to a permanent site was located here in Misquis. And it was located on the first floor, and they'd moved in there. And over the course of three years, they were probably there for about two and a half. But it was first visual confirmation I had. Of course, it doesn't say it on the card, but you can actually see. I mean, I have a description of what it was to walk up the stairs and get into this place. And you can see it's in the first floor. 
So you really you had information that was then confirmed Confirmed by this. So you were ready to walk into this card and go up those stairs because you knew it. And and so you know, and I had been trying to figure out about who the audiences were that would have would have climbed up the stairs. And there it is. We see people milling around on the streets in front of this place. The tram car bringing people that would have stopped in front of this building to get off. And and I'm looking for the first time at, at people who potentially could have been film audiences. And, of course, being a visual medium, it it brings it to life in a way that is very immediate for you. Absolutely. Making sense of the, the jigsaw got, falling into place. I got out my magnifying glass because, <laughs> of course, you couldn't you couldn't, uh, yeah. scan it in those and days. And more detail always comes out yeah, under it, a magnifying it does, glass. It does, and then you pick out all kinds of details that I wouldn't have otherwise have done. But it, it also just – this was a very important um, – this corner, this junction became the place where all the first big picture palaces were built. And so it's in, you know, this Mount Road. I, Omar, I think, knows um, Chennai and Madras um, quite well. But um, at one time, there were like six cinema halls just all facing each other. Oh, and wow. this, this big, giant intersection. And um, and this is the beginning of it? This was the first, uh, the first of the lot. And uh, just down the road, the first permanent cinema hall was built. And a famous uh, touring cinema company called the Elphinstone, uh, which came from Calcutta, set up shop here. Um, and eventually it built its own picture palace across the street from it. But it made me realize that I was able to see that, in fact, they didn't move straight into their own picture palace. They operated for several years in this temporary location. And it's after they built up a clientele that they decided they could build their own. Which makes perfect sense for a business, doesn't yeah, it? So, so, there is. But all all the pieces, I mean, it just sort of began to fall into place in this neighborhood once I got this picture. And it made me want more. <laughs> what were people's responses to cinema that then? It must have been incredible for them. Yeah, it was. I mean, the, the, the first audiences were largely European, but of course um, it didn't take, I mean, in the 19th, late 19th century because it was in a kind of European entertainment format, right? So it was, you know, it was with some dance program or some light opera or whatever. Uh, I mean, it was basically music hall style entertainment, vaudeville in the United States. And that didn't appeal really to Indians, but it didn't take very long at all. And if you wanted to make money on cinema, you had to appeal to everyone. And that means you had seating classes that would encourage Indians to be able to buy tickets. And so there was a huge range of who was allowed to um, get into the cinema, who could afford to buy it. But it's it's curious also that um, we don't often think of um, history of postcards and cinemas being linked. But the the history that you gave of of your early postcards uh, from Austria, the uh, the, the Austrian who who published the first of Calcutta, maps on perfectly to the moment when cinema is arriving in India for the first time. You know, 1896, 1897 is when, when it's being unveiled in India. And there, there's a way in which um, even um, some of the early films that people are watching in these early cinema halls in India or around the world, in fact, which were, were known as scenics, which were short three-minute films that were of sights from around the world. So you would have a three-minute shot of, say, the you know windmills in Holland, or a three-minute shot of you know the the pyramids in Egypt, and really what these were. Yeah, what were, is that? They were film versions of postcards. Absolutely. So the father of Indian cinema, Dada Saab Palke, was actually a postcard publisher before he became a movie mm-hmm. maker. And Durandar made a series of postcards for him that were actually the basis for the early Indian movies, which were morality tales. So there's a big connection there. Yeah, there is. And the same pattern in the north of England, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. With, with early postcards. And in fact, some narr- specific narrative elements 
I think you have to add magic lanterns into the equation yes, as well. Do, but there are, there are common elements across there. The, the certain narrative forms are just bubbling out at the same time or capturing the imagination in whatever form they could find themselves. People just wanted those steam trains. They wanted those uh, chimney sweeps fighting with uh, millers. We, we tend to think of postcards as, as, as being representational of a place. Right? It's like a fixed image of, you know, a street scene or a monument or something that's iconic, vista and whatnot. But I, I think when you look at these early postcards, they have a strong narrative content. A lot of them are telling stories in ways that you have to be able to read them into this this larger pattern of, you know, what's happening, you know, before, middle and after in the way that you would narrate a story. Well, this this brings us well to another card you have here which it sort of has a story despite itself. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that my favorite of the historical parks cards of India are the ones with messages. Um, I think much the way that you are entertained by the pithy sort of one-liners that you're able to, these nuggets you're able to sort of mine from the back of these these postcards, mostly the written messages are the ones that get me excited because they tell stories about the pictures and peoples and places and we get a sense of, you know, people are reading the photographs for us. We don't have to imagine. We can we can get other people's versions of it, which I find quite useful. But, in fact, the postcard I want to show you now is was not sent. Um, but it's not short of human interaction, is not, it? Not at all. It's a, what we call a real photo postcard, uh, similar to the ones that I had shown of my, my grandfather. It was a photograph that was not sent to a printer. Um, it wasn't colorized. It was just printed directly on to a generic postcard back, right? And it's a street scene um, in Madras somewhere of a, two merchants, two, somebody is selling vegetables and the other one is selling some sort of cooked food. We can't make out what it is. And they're in these little sort of mat enclosures and obviously the is centered in the in the photograph is a an indian father who's sort of very lovingly and patiently looking after two small boys who are uh, yeah, I mean, as if they're, he's trying to get them to move along or just look after them. It's a, it's a very nice, sweet father. father do you think it's one images. of those generic shots of, of paternal love? Is that what it's, they're aiming at there? Well, certainly, yeah, it is. It, it is something going. You see a loving father, somebody so, sort of affectionately, very gently caring after his kids. I mean, but on but on the edges, that's when that's where the more, picture comes some to life. More people who've I, I wonder if they've been asked to move out the shot. Absolutely, if they have, they haven't done a very good job of it. No, so what you have is in the center of the picture, you have the father and these, these two street vendors behind him. And then clearly the photographer has asked the crowd that assembled around the photo shoot, because he would have had to set up his camera on the tripod, the whole palava of, of, you know, getting the plates and everything ready, directing everyone to be in the place. And you have bystanders in the street, neighbors, maybe other people crossing the street who are sort of crowding in to want to see what's going on. And he's clearly told everyone to stay out of the main focus of the picture. So they're off to the side and he, and he takes the snap. Well, you would expect a photographer to crop out the bits that didn't fit in. But here, in this case, the people on the margin are all lit up. They're laughing. They're smiling. They're have a, having a great time. They're very focused on the camera. On the camera. They're looking straight it's, at the camera. It's as if, as if the cam- they're either laughing at the cameraman for having said a joke or laughing because he was somehow fumbling around and incompetent. And all the energy of the photo is, despite the careful composition drains to the side of these people, these broad grins who are just having a right old laugh. And, and Did you see this the same way, Emma? Yeah, I mean, they're reflecting on the art of posturing. 
I mean, in a <laughs> sense, well you know, the man is putting his kids in front and these people are laughing about it. And it's this very interesting interplay between all these human subjectivities. So I think it's wonderful. So, but it's a rare, it's a rare moment. It's, it's like a photographic moment where you actually, it sort of captures a sense of the photographic encounter. Yes. But you see the photographer. Is, yes, you've I, spoken a lot about the photographer as if you can see him. Yeah, because you can't. he's there. Yeah, he's, he's there. there. He's absolutely there in, in these people's faces. I mean, they're responding to the photographer more than uh, the center. In fact, the people in the center are, I mean, he's, they're in a world of their own. They're not paying attention to the camera at all. Well, it's a sort of essay on spontaneity as well, mm. because the, the image in the, in the center, the approved image, the chosen image, it lacks any spontaneity. And in fact, photography in those days was hard to be spontaneous. It was, it was a palaver. But on the edges of the frame, it feels very spontaneous and candid. Just people looking at the camera and being amused. They're just ordinary people. I mean, there's just people going about in their everyday lives. I'm sure they would have lived in that area. But again, he, it's, you have to take your hat off to the photographer because in the end of the day, he chose not to crop them out. And he printed that one. He printed that out. Because Mind he, you, you he, don't get to preview in those days so much. No, you didn't. But the, there was a lot of manipulation you could do to the image. And um, in your darkroom, you can make it as big or small as you want. Because yeah. it would have been a, a, a sort of, it could have been a, a large glass plate negative. So he, he saw the benefit of the shot. So yeah, he, hats he, off to he, him. Was, he was converted by the, uh, by the onlookers. <laughs> Well, that's very good. Thanks for those cards, Steve. Omar, what's the final card you've got for us today? We're, we're looking at a vintage card now. Yes, this is Lahore, uh, Vazir Khan's mosque, inner part. Uh, it's a Tux card, which was Britain's great publisher uh, of empire as well. And they probably produce 500 to 1,000 cards of India. So this is one of my favorite places in Lahore. Whenever I visit the city, I try and go to Vazir Khan's mosque. I've been going there since I was a little kid. You walk through the bazaar, these narrow, narrow lanes, and suddenly you come upon this enormous, beautiful mosque with this great front gateway and four minarets on the side. It's been under restoration ever since I can remember remember. It's gorgeous Mughal tile work all around, and they keep restoring it. It's really brightly colored. The postcard doesn't actually even bring out the reds and the yellows and the orange that are really, really rich and deep. And this is actually, uh, I mean, the caption in the back says, Vazir Khan's Mosque Lahore. This beautiful mosque was built in 1634 by Hakim Alauddin, governor of the Punjab under Emperor Shah Jahan. But what is so notable about this mosque is that you can walk in and you can pay the imam 100 rupees today, it used to be 5 rupees, and walk up the minaret. And you get this stunning view of the walled city of Lahore because it's right inside the walled city. And it was up one of these minarets that Samuel Bourne went in October 1864 and took an amazing shot of Lahore, one of the earliest uh, albumin photographs ever taken. This is where Kipling, one of the minarets he walked up in the 1880s and wrote the original version of The City of Dreadful Night, just looking and reflecting over all the people sleeping in the city. He was kind of delirious. It was a very hot night. And he just wrote about seeing all these bodies out there and what they were doing and thinking. Later, the story was transposed uh, to Kolkata. But I actually read in the original civil and military gazette, uh, the story at the National Archives of Pakistan. So a very incredibly rich place in history. And I think there's so much life in the bazaar around it. So many, I mean, American painters came here and painted the front and and did different things. Uh, Edwin Lord Weeks, for example. So it's really uh, one of those places that really draws in many currents of history and just overwhelms you with its beauty. Very nice. Now, going back to your book for a minute, you've it feels like such an authoritative overview uh, of cards from this area, from this part of the world. But from reading it and from, from, from reading about what you've been up to, it's an endlessly shifting pattern, really, isn't it? Because your collect- collections don't finish. Well, they finish when we 
topple off the mortal coil or anything. But you, you, you're kind of endlessly still updating and you presumably could have a second edition with new information, new Absolutely. cards? I mean, the great thing about postcards is that they truly are endless. I mean, every week I buy, you know, at least a dozen postcards and new ones turn up all the time. I thought I was bad. <laughs> but it's the hunt for that unique postcard or that new message on a postcard that you already know well that is so, you know, enjoyable and it's so rewarding to find those things. But I think, I mean, I think you would agree the field of Indian postcards is enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some publishers who I know have made hundreds of postcards and I might have a few dozen. So I know there are hundreds still to collect and uh, put together and trace the album and, you know, that they came from or, or whatnot. So, and there's some very rare postcards uh, where you may only have had 50 or 100 made and you're lucky if you find one or two and it might take 10 years in between seeing a version of that. So I think that's part of the fun is being this sort of detective and continuing to build your collection. And I'm trying very hard to put all of these postcards, you know, restore them and put them online and put a taxonomy so people People can actually learn from them, and they can provide a view into Indian history uh, that many other people can also think about and use for their own ways of, you know, understanding what went on in those times. Well, that's great. Well, thank you. For, thank you for sharing them with the world in those projects. But thank you for sharing them with us today. Thank you both for sharing your cards with us today. I'm delighted you did. I'm sure our listeners are too. Uh, another quick reminder, uh, images of all the cards we featured today are on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can look at them and you can see that we didn't make it up. And you, you can even judge for yourself whether you think the uh, bystanders at the side are laughing in uh, sympathy or with uh, ridicule at the photographer. One more card from me. This is uh, in the past postcard style. Uh, these feel such so pathetic compared to uh, these fine Indian cards. But this is a picture of a horse, for those who couldn't, uh, couldn't work it out. It's a card published by Bamforth, and the card is from 1970, I think. The message that I've chosen to feature is uh, very, very simple indeed. Beverly is not having a great time, and she says, The hotel is very nice... And meals, not very nice. <laughs> so there you go. Beverly does not mince her words. Now, before we let Elmer and Steve back to uh, their everyday lives, I've got one more card for you both to have a look at. I don't know if either of you have seen one of these. You probably have. Given that we're part of the postcard cognoscenti today. Do, do, you, do you have a... Uh, can you play this? Well, we should just describe it for the for the listener. Well, it must be it must be set on a it's set on a lake in Germany. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, it's actually no Viennese. Yeah, this is on the Danube. Yeah, it's on the Danube. This is a this is a tribute. Uh, so this what it is is actually it's a it's a forty five uh, RPM. So yeah, it's I mean, incredible. It's a, it's a record stamped onto a postcard. Exactly, and it must be the Blue Danube. Well, we'll see. We'll have to see. Now, David's been waiting in the other room very patiently. Has he got sound off this? We we have a, a record player, and if he came through, perhaps we could see if we can make oh, it well, do its nice. thing. What year is this from? Do you know? That's you? absolutely fantastic. I think early 60s. Early 60s, fantastic. Shame about the perforation in the middle. Oh, no, that's what it's that's, meant to yeah. be there. <laughs> You'll require oh, that. I'm sorry. I'm just joking. <laughs> Bit scratchy. Stop complaining. <laughs> So would you be. <laughs> this is all designed to take Omar back to his childhood. Weißen, <laughs> 
Well, not bad for a piece of cardboard. Perfect, it's a translate. <laughs> Excellent. Can you, can you make sense of the words? What sort of thing is it? Leaving Vienna. Your heart, what have you lost? Im Weissen Rössel and the White Sea. Ah, that's the picture on the front, I think. So unusually, the, the music is reflecting the image. It's not always the case. Well, as our Austrian scene continues to rotate, that's it for this time on Podcasts from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts. Dr. Stephen Hughes and Omar Khan. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book Postcard from the Past by me, Tom Jackson at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.